In the name of Jesus, amen. The temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil is both an example uh, for us and also a comfort for us. Um, <clears throat> we, we learn a lot about the, devils, uh, about the devil, about temptation, about who Jesus is. Um, we also learn about and gain confidence in Christ and our own salvation. Uh, this isn't an exhaustive list uh, for today, but there's so much more that could be learned and drawn from this text. Uh, but I'm only going to make six points uh, from this text. Um, the first point is this. There is a difference between temptation and sin. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 makes that distinction. It says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet remained without sin. And so there is a distinction. There's a difference between these things. Uh, there is a difference between feeling temptation and yielding to temptation, giving into it. Uh, giving into temptation either in thought or word or deed or desire. And that means we should uh, fight against temptation. When you're tempted, that doesn't mean you have to sin. The battle is just beginning. Uh, you pray to God for strength. You fight it. You resist it. God promised that he would give you a way out. So while Jesus felt true temptation, uh, he never sinned. That's the first point. Simple distinction between temptation and sin. Uh, the second point is that nobody can avoid temptation, which may sound obvious, but we can and should uh, avoid placing ourselves into tempting situations. We shouldn't run headfirst into uh, situations that will cause us to be tempted. We should avoid those things. But um, you cannot avoid them forever. You can't avoid them perfectly. Adam and Eve were created in God's perfect holy image. They were capable of not sinning. They were in paradise. And yet, the devil found them and tempted them. Jesus is the holy and perfect sinless Son of God. And he is in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. And the devil comes and tempts him. Um, what I'm saying, like I said before, it might sound obvious but I don't want you ever to think that you can find a place in this world where you can actually escape all temptation. As if a place like that exists here. Monks and nuns and hermits and ascetics have actually tried something like this. They've tried to create a holy place in the middle of a desert, cutting off contact with the, with the rest of the world to avoid all temptation so that they don't sin, to create a place in the middle of nowhere. And they find that they can't, that they're still tempted there day and night, again and again, even in the middle of nowhere. So don't think that you can in any way create or find some utopia in this life that's going to be holy and safe uh, flee, uh, free from all temptations, uh, free from sin. All too often, people will let their guard down because they're in a church or because they're in a Christian school or some Christian organization or they work in the district office 
or there's some wonderful philanthropic nonprofit organization that they're working for and they think that life is just gonna be better there, it's gonna be different there, it's gonna be a better job, it's gonna be a better place, it's gonna be blissful, gracious, uh, full of forgiveness, there's no conflicts, there's no difficult conversations, there's none of those sort of things. And what do they find? They find that that place is full of temptations as well and sin. This is why there have been awful sins and scandals even in what we would consider holy and good places. Um, the, the very seminaries of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, our own seminaries, uh, our own publishing house, the, the very international center, the headquarters of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod where everyone is Lutheran on paper, everybody believes the same thing, everybody uh, does these same things. Um, even in these places, there have been scandals and sins. Why? Because there are thousands upon thousands of temptations even in those places. And instead of resisting the temptation, many have given into it. The, the only point I'm making here is that <clears throat> temptation in this life is inevitable. As long as you live in the flesh, as long as the devil is around, as long as you're alive, you cannot avoid temptations and incitements to sin. Our life is one where we will constantly suffer and struggle against it. So you never, ever let your guard down. You don't let your guard down. There's no safe place in this regard. Even right now here in church, even on a Sunday morning, even right now as you're listening to the sermon, you will have temptations to sin. To not hear the word of God and hold it sacred or gladly hear it and learn it. You'll be tempted in that way. You'll be tempted with your heart, with lust or anger or distraction or whatever it might be. You, you must, as a Christian, expect to be tempted every day. We cannot go on our way securely thinking uh, that we can make it or cruise by unscathed here. Even though right now, right now, this second, you, may, you might be patient and kind and firm in the faith and chaste and decent, the very next hour, the devil will come to rip that all away. So remember... When one temptation is over, another one begins. Again and again, until your final breath. Uh, the third point is that the devil attacks Christians more than he does unbelievers. Being baptized means that you are now a target for the devil. Uh, we saw the devil do this with Jesus. Once Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that the temptation happened immediately, immediately after. He didn't do this before he was baptized. He didn't do it any of the years uh, prior to that. But immediately after he was baptized, then he tempted him. He put him to the test. And, and then notice what the devil does. He does something very pointed and particular. He attacks the very direct and clear words of the Father that the Father said to Jesus. The Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the temptation of the devil is, if you are the Son of God, then do this. Uh, he did the same thing with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told by the Lord, um, 
Uh, you may eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. And then the temptation of the devil, the words he says are, did God really say you shall not eat of this tree and that you'll surely die? In the same way, when you are baptized, when the scriptures say baptism now saves you, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism now saves you, then the devil comes around and says, well, does, does baptism really save you? Does it save you completely? Again, the devil attacks Christians even more. He doesn't, he, he doesn't attack unbelievers the same way he attacks you. It's a totally different strategy. Um, they have already rejected Jesus, which is the point of temptation, the point of sin. It's not just to get you to sin, but it's to get you to renounce Christ. So they're already there. However, there's another reason he attacks uh, Christians more. And it's because the devil knows that he can cause more damage to the church, uh, to faith, if Christians fall into public and manifest sin, rather than unbelievers. There is more damage to the church when Christians fall into public and manifest sin than when unbelievers do. Consider this. Right now, there are unbelievers, there are heathens, doing all sorts of scandalous things, doing, uh, giving into temptation, sinning in awful ways right now, living in uh, promiscuity or adultery or whatever it might be. And all of us are still here in church. We're all here today. And it's fine. No one has left the church. No one is in shock. No one is angry over this. We're still here. Why? Because it is completely unsurprising when heathens act like heathens. When an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever, then we are not surprised. You say, well, yeah, of course. But if we see the same exact behavior from someone in the church, from a leader or a pastor or a teacher or an elder, or a secretary, or an organist, whatever it might be from uh, anyone, from someone who bears the name of Christ, then how many Christian congregations have been utterly destroyed over that? It's the same exact thing, isn't it? But now it is in the church, and it's so much worse. How many congregations and churches have closed their doors on account of just one of these things? How many have left the faith over it, over mismanagement and lying, uh, absconding of funds, whatever it might be, when this stuff happens all the time elsewhere and we're still here? So the point I'm making is that when these scandals happen in the church, when they happen among Christians, then it is far more scandalous and damaging. And so where's the devil going to put his effort? He's going to put it... There. It's an absolute scandal. Um, this happens too many times um, to count. This is why Jesus gives such harsh words, such harsh words in Matthew chapter 18 against anyone who causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. He says, go take a rope and a millstone, which is a few thousand pounds, tie it around your neck and drown yourself. That's how serious he is. Anyone who causes any one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble in the faith, do that. 
So don't think that your life will be easier now that you're a Christian or now that you're baptized. But it will be harder. Uh, The fourth point. This is uh, just coming from, directly from uh, the text this morning. People can quote verses directly from the Bible and be completely wrong. You have to be aware of that. They can quote the Bible word for word and be wrong. This is how the devil attacked Jesus. He quoted the actual verses of the Bible. But the, the trick here is, is that when he quoted the verse, he took that out of context. Uh, this is a, a, a critical point that we have to have in mind. You have to be aware of this. False prophets, they do this all the time. Uh, this is how cults, how many cults use the Bible. How many of them use Bible verses and justify what they're doing and explain it and say, look, I'm just doing what the Bible says. How many atrocities are committed in the same way by taking this verse and saying, well, look, that's permission. That's giving me the license to do it. Uh, False prophets, they will quote Bible verses, ripping them out of context. And the bottom line is that just because someone is quoting the Bible, it doesn't mean they have done so correctly. I'll give you an an example here. For instance, uh, 500 years ago, Ulrich Zwingli who was a Reformed theologian, argued with Martin Luther on the words of Jesus, the verba domini, the words of institution, uh, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, he takes bread and he says, this is my body which is given for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And, and so Luther, they, they came together and they started to debate and Luther said, well, what is the Lord's Supper? Well, he went to the night on which, uh, when Jesus was betrayed and he points to Jesus' words and he said, Jesus took bread and he broke it and gave it to them and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Uh, this is for the forgiveness of sins. This is the cup, uh, the, the blood of the new covenant and so on and so forth. It's for the forgiveness of sins. Here, Jesus was talking about the Lord's Supper. So what did Luther do? He quoted Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper. So if you wanted to find out what Jesus said about the Lord's Supper, then he goes to where the Lord's Supper is. Now, Zwingli, on the other hand, um, said that the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper are not the body and blood of Christ, and they do not give the forgiveness of sins. And the way Zwingli proved his point was by quoting the Bible. He quoted John chapter 6. The Jesus' words at the feeding of the 5,000, some, a lot, a, a, a good amount of time before the Lord's Supper was given. He quotes Jesus' words at the feeding of the 5,000 and quotes this specific verse, the flesh availeth nothing. And he quoted that verse and he said, that verse in context, Jesus is saying that man, flesh, cannot achieve his own salvation. The flesh availeth nothing. It is of no help. And so you need the Holy Spirit. You need God. But Zwingli then took that verse, the flesh availeth nothing. And he said, well, there you have it. You heard it from Jesus himself. The flesh is of no use. It is of no avail. So even if Jesus is present in body and blood in the Lord's Supper, it wouldn't benefit us. It's of no avail. Do you see that? Again, that, I'm not, this isn't a straw man argument. I'm not making this up. This is his actual argument. 
What Zwingli does is he dismisses what Jesus says about the Lord's Supper. But he quotes the words of Jesus from a different place at a different time, not about the Lord's Supper, to refute what he did clearly say about the Lord's Supper. He used his his own words against Jesus. Now, people still use this trick today. Mainline liberal churches, uh, denominations, quote the Bible left and right. If you go to any mainline liberal church, they are using the Bible. That's the danger. They have the Bible in their lectern or their pulpits. They are quoting it. They're reading from it. But again, what they're doing is they are ripping it out of context. For example, probably the most relevant and pertinent one today Many will quote Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul writes, There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. In the context, Paul is saying that, uh, he is teaching that uh, all who are saved have faith in Christ, and they are the true sons of Abraham, because they have faith in the Son, in Christ. Um, and so there are no divisions in this sense, that salvation is equally for all in this, in this way. But they would quote Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and say, look, there is no male and female. Do you see this? Uh, so there you have it. Women can read the lessons in church. And women can distribute the Lord's Supper. And women can be elders and pastors. And in fact, uh, transgenders can be bishops. And homosexuals can be married and ordained. There is no order of creation. There's no head of the home. None of that. Why? Because there's no male or female in Christ now. That's what they do. And they ignore the verses where God clearly and plainly talks about those very things. And they use this verse to trump all of that. They quote the scriptures against itself. Now, we can come up with hundreds and thousands of examples of people uh, doing this sort of thing. This is an evil trick. My point only is beware of it. Just some practical advice here. When someone quotes a verse to you to prove something, make sure that that verse is actually talking about the thing that they're saying it's talking about. Don't let someone try and disprove or (laughs) dismiss the words of Baptism, where it says that it is for the forgiveness of sins, that it saves you, by quoting all of the verses that have nothing to do with baptism. Or don't let somebody dismiss the words that we're saved by grace through faith alone by quoting the verses that are not talking about salvation in that way. Memory verses are good. You ought to memorize the Bible. You ought to memorize certain verses. And this is a very helpful thing. But you need also to read the Bible in context. Go back to those verses and see what the chapter is saying and what the book is saying, what it is in in its context. The devil knows the Bible and you need to know it even better. Uh, The fifth point here. It's a brief point, but I make this point every year now uh, without fail. Jesus while fully God and fully man, had a human body and human soul. And in this life, throughout his entire life, could not sin. He was incapable of sin. It was impossible for him to sin. 
This is what we call in theology the impeccability of Christ. Uh, This is not, as far as I'm concerned, a Lutheran thing. Every Christian denomination confesses this, as far as I'm concerned, that Christ was incapable of sinning, that it just wasn't a thing. It couldn't have happened. He could be tempted, but he couldn't sin. Uh, And I've preached about this at length four years in a row already. Um, if, If you just listen to the sermons that I've preached on, Already, I've made the same point over and over again, and I'm only going to summarize it here. The fact that Jesus couldn't sin doesn't take away from his temptation. In fact, it makes it even greater. The fact that he couldn't sin means he felt the full weight of temptation in a way that you and I cannot feel it. You cannot know the full weight and allurement of temptation by giving into temptation, which is what we do when we sin. We've all sinned, which means we've given up at some point. We, we have not seen it through. We haven't seen the temptation go run its full course. We've given up somewhere along the line, which means we couldn't feel what it really feels like. But Jesus, by never sinning, um, which means he never gave into temptation, knows the full weight of temptation knows what it feels like the entire time until the end. And he knows it not by his omniscience alone, but by what the scriptures say, his personal experience. Uh, Hebrews 4 again says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. It's referring to his life. By experience. Jesus' uh, temptation is not a simulation. It's a true temptation. He felt it and he suffered it. And this is a tenet of faith, even if we can't fully comprehend it or understand it. Now, the the sixth and the final point is this. Uh, Jesus' temptation was actually the Father's plan the entire time. Uh, This wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't that the devil just took this as an opportunity. It was... um, It was intended by the Father. It was something that the Father planned and wanted. Matthew chapter 4 says that Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who put him there. Mark chapter 1 says it even more forcefully. The Holy Spirit immediately drove him out. The word there in Greek is to like launch or thrown out there in the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tempted by the devil. So what I want to do is bring these last points together, see if I could bring them all together here, point five and six. Um, If Jesus couldn't sin, which is true, he could not, then why did God throw him out into the wilderness to be tempted to sin? Why? What what was the point? I I could understand if it were the devil only, if it were his doing only, thinking that he could outsmart God and he would do something that's dumb and try to get him to sin. I could understand that. But what boggles my mind is that the scriptures say that it was God who put Christ out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted, even though he knew he couldn't sin. Why? What, what, What use is this? Why in the world would he do this? Well, I used to think that Jesus' temptation was a test to see if he could handle this. As if we're supposed to look at this and be unsure of the outcome and 
finally, when we see him overcome, then we should be relieved and say, oh, phew, that was a close one. Man, he, he really went through the ringer there, and, but I'm so glad he, he made it. <laughs> um, that is completely wrong. That is not how we're to, to view this text. Jesus' temptation was not a test to see if he could handle it. It was to prove he could. It was to prove that he would not turn under any circumstance from the Father. That is why. And this is so beautiful and comforting because Jesus has nothing to prove to God. He has nothing to prove to himself. He knows he cannot sin. The the Father knows he cannot sin. He has nothing to prove in this respect. He is proving himself to you for your sake and for your comfort. And the reason he does this is because your salvation is riding on his back and depends completely upon him. Your eternal life depends upon this man, Christ the Lord. And here he gives you the greatest proof and comfort and certainty of his ability to save you. If Jesus, at his weakest point, would not turn against the Father's will for one fleeting second in thought or word or deed or even in his desires, in his heart, even while he faced the devil's strongest attacks and temptations, if Jesus did not turn against the Father's will at that point, then Jesus would not turn against the Father's will at any point. The Son came not to do His own will, but the Father's. Jesus would not and could not go against the Father's will. And so if the Father withheld food from him for 40 days and 40 nights, then so be it, Jesus would say. And then if if the Father decided for another 40 days and nights, I'll do the same exact thing. I'll keep you here another length of time. Then Jesus would have stayed there still. And again and again, he would have endured everything that he had to endure. Because there was not any shadow of turning with him. No one, nothing, not even the greatest pains and sufferings could get Jesus to budge even one millimeter from the will of the Father. And this to you, and this is, uh, if, if, um, I, I want you to take this to heart, keep this in mind, this is the main point. Nothing could get Jesus to budge from the Father's will, and this here is the confidence and certainty we have in our salvation. Why? Well, what is the Father's will? Jesus tells us. Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day, because it is my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And dear saints, that is what your salvation depends upon. Not you, not your willpower, not the good you do. Your salvation depends upon Jesus who keeps the Father's will. And he imputes to you all of his perfect righteousness and holy obedience to you as if you had done it. He suffered all he needed to suffer. He endured what he needed to endure. He kept the Father's will to save you, even if it meant, he kept the Father's will to save you, even if it meant being starved 
and famished and emaciated and beaten and flogged and stripped naked and mocked and spit upon, having our spit on his face, being mocked and attacked, even if it meant bursted capillaries in his face, simply at the thought of the pain that would come to him. Even if it meant gasping for air and choking on his own blood, having his lungs collapse in his chest, dying in shame and wrath. He couldn't and wouldn't for a second turn away from the Father, which means he would not and will never turn away from you. Dear saints, that is what your salvation rests upon, and so we look at this day with confidence and assurance that your salvation is secure in his hands. So flee temptation in this life like hell. Run to Christ. He alone saves you. Your salvation depends upon him. He cannot lose. He cannot lose you, whom the Father has given to him. He will raise you up on the last day, and you will see the Son, and you see him in faith now. But you will see him on that last day. Amen. Hear the words of the hymn we sang. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, they tremble. Whoops, sorry. All eager to devour us. We tremble not, we fear no ill. They shall not overpower us. This world's prince may still scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged, the deed is done. One little word can fell him. And the word they still shall let remain, nor any thanks have for it. He's by our side upon the plain with his good gifts and spirit. And take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, though these all be gone. Our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.